Welcome to another episode of You Pedagog Girl, where we explore pedagogical approaches to education from our perspective as two women in the field for ECEs all over the world. My name is Danielle. I'm Mena. And, and we, we are your co-hosts. Today we'll be unpacking alternative narratives in early childhood, an introduction for students and practitioners by author Peter Moss, focusing on Chapter 4, titled Visual Media a story of democracy, experimentation, and potentiality. So here's a quick rundown of the key concepts we'll be getting into today. We're going to briefly touch on the history of Reggio Emilia and how it ties into democracy. We're also talking about the rich line today. Daniel, what do you think about when you hear that? A child burn into wealth? Is there more to it? Hmm, I don't know. And then we will move on to research and experimentation and what that looks like in a visual environment. First, visual media is not an approach, it's a local cultural project that emerged in the 1960s and the 1970s. The first visual media school was opened in 1963 and was only for children from 3 to 6 years old. Later, this age rate changed. When these schools opened, they were very important at the time because of many things that I was surprised to know. Like it was a source of hope for the Italians of the Second World War. It shows what can be achieved by local communities or groups and usually media challenges that dictatorship of no alternative. Because, as I said, it brought huge sources of hope to early childhood education in Italy. So Reggio came about as sort of a rebellion to the rigid dictatorship of World War II. They were basically looking to reinvent everything they could in the image of democracy. And in terms of educating children, it was about giving them voice and choice in their learning experiences. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Oh my god, thanks girl. <laughs> and it makes me think about our system of government. It's a democracy. So we vote in elections, we have freedom of choice in religion, education, what we eat, our views, and our opinions. That's something that's consistent with the Reggio Emilia project. Right. And even in public school systems where members of communities or parents and student councils are elected by the community. So let's get into the idea of the rich child. I'll be honest, Mena. You asked if I thought about a child born into wealth when you introduced the topic at the top of the show. And honestly, I did. No. <laughs> like, I know what it means, but a literal rich child is definitely what pops into my mind right away. Reading this chapter, it's more of a statement of a child being rich in potential and being capable of being an expert in their own learning. The rich child within the visual media's perspective is born with a hundred languages. And due to that, the child is seen as a protagonist, a citizen, and the child of a knowable potentiality. A quote that explains the perspective is the rich child is learning from birth itself, not needing to be redeemed or prepared to learn at some later age. Also, the meaning of learning within visual media is understood from a social constructivist perspective. In this chapter, we also learn about the rich teacher. What does that mean? What does that look like? I mean, immediately your mind might go to the financial aspect of that. Just like for me, it went to the financial aspect when we mm -hmm. thought about the rich child. But it's not something that's tangible, right? Yeah. We learned that the rich teacher serves as a complement to the rich child. And through listening, scaffolding, and supporting, the teacher becomes fluent in the hundred languages of the child. Also, the text says that the rich teacher should be capable of maintaining this gift of marveling and wonder as a fundamental quality in a person working with children. 
Absolutely. I mean, on page 77 of the chapter, Moss describes this teacher as a listener, a creator of rich learning environments, a democratic professional, a researcher, and an experimenter. He goes on to say that an important part of this teacher's role is creating rich opportunities and environments for children and their learning opportunities where the unexpected and wonderful are more likely to occur. And I think about my classroom. Crazy things happen all the time. Yeah. And when I say crazy, I mean crazy good. A child might put together two things that we normally wouldn't think of, and they come out with something absolutely amazing. And I think the best part is creating a space where those things are possible. Does that change your views or expand your knowledge about the rich child and the rich teacher? Oh, for sure. Same for me, because now in our time, the word rich has a different meaning, and we don't use it much within the field of education. Since socioeconomic status never changes our quality of care as educators, right? Right. It's about being rich in potential and rich in support to extract the most from the potential young learners are born with. With that being said, we'll take a quick break. Stay tuned. Where the trail ends, the beyond begins. The Chevrolet Silverado ZR2. Built to take you where the trail ends, so you can go beyond. Welcome back, listeners. Let's move into our story time segment, my favorite part of the show, where we get to connect with our listeners and share some of personal experiences. We get so many emails and DMs from you, our listeners, asking a variety of questions. Each week, we randomly select two questions and answer them on air. Let's start with our first letter. Mena, what have we got? Our first letter is from Mike in Houston, Texas. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hello, Manny and Daniel. I'm I'm a grade 12 student, and I'm applying to the Early Childhood Education Program. Nice. My guidance currently there suggests that I look into a more manly profession since Mm. EZEs are mostly women. I have always wanted to educate little ones since my younger brother was born. My question is, are there men in this field or in other words? Is it okay for me to join this field? I don't want to be seen as a creepy or anything. (laughs) No. Thank you, Mike, for your question. First of all, there are men who are working in this field. It's not a problem. It's not a weird situation. But I have to say that there are not much as women in this field. And I think it's because of the stereotypes of women taking taking better care of children than men. Or maybe men have the desire to join this field, but... They get hesitant, so they don't join it. However, I really encourage you to join this field because it's incredible. There are stuff that we need a man to do or to help with us. I think representation is so important. I think just seeing men in that caretaking role sends a great message to children. And sometimes just a man being in the classroom can fill the void of a child missing a father figure in their life. So I think it's a great thing, and I absolutely think you should apply. We'd be happy to have you in the field. Our next letter is from Anamta in Brampton, Ontario. Hi, Daniela Mena. Hi. I love your show, and I've been listening to it every week since the first episode. I work at the child care center in a transitional housing facility for battered women. Because these women are fleeing abuse, most don't consent to photos of their child being posted for pedagogical documentation. Have you ever experienced anything like this? How can I share the learning that's taking place in my classroom without showing photos of the children in the process? Okay, so thank you so much for that question, Anamta. And thank you so much for the incredible work you're doing to support the children and families at your facility. Yes, I've had students in the past that did not give consent for photos. For some of the families, they were fleeing abuse. For other families, they were fleeing violence from war-torn countries. 
Privacy and safety are going to be things that you have to handle with extra care in these situations, which can make pedagogical documentation challenging, but definitely not impossible. There are many ways to approach pedagogical documentation. In my situation, I just made sure that they weren't accidentally in the background of photos I was taking of the other children. If you want to share photos in and around the classroom, just take photos of their hands or the back of their heads while they work. You've got to make sure that you leave out any distinguishing marks or clothing that can be easily identified. You can also share photos privately with parents using a secure app or shared album. Another idea is to just document the children's process in writing with anecdotal notes, running records. In my practice, I've always made it a point to create a portfolio for each of the children's art and share details of emerging skills with parents, but I made sure to do it at increased intervals with parents who were not able to receive daily photos. They were so grateful. Those were really interesting questions. Yeah, I love those. Okay, so now let's get back to the program. What do we have left to cover? My favorite concept from this chapter, research and experimentation. But why is it your favorite? Um, because it really puts a scientific spin on the process of learning. Like you don't look at a child playing and think, wow, that little one sure is researching and experimenting. But that's exactly what they're doing when you think about it. Right, but it's not only children that are researching and experimenting in the learning environment, it's also us educators. Think about our observations and anecdotal record. That's research of the child. We ask questions to help expand learning and create new opportunities based on emerging skills and interests. That's research too. And one of the ways we share our research findings is through pedagogical documentation. Research is included in everything we do. Pedagogical sure. documentation is a huge element in visual media. It, it makes children's learning visible. It also shows to everyone outside the classroom, like parents or other visitors, the process and the outcome of their learning. Have you ever thought about those things as research before, per se, or was it just part of the job for you? Well, before going to college, I knew trying the things about research, as I wasn't asked to do much in high school. When I started college in my first semester, we were just being introduced to it for assignments and stuff like that. So research looked like a lot different for me. After I started doing observations, anecdotal records, and when I started doing placements, I started to realize I was studying the children, which is basically research. Definitely. I mean, experimenting is something that comes naturally to children. They're putting their feet into their mouths. They're pouring their milk into their macaroni and cheese. They're pushing their toys over the edge of the table. They're wanting to see the cause and effect of every scenario in their environment. To let children make mistakes, it's okay. They learn by doing that. On page 76 of this chapter, Moss says, Children want to research for themselves. Try, make mistakes, try again, marvel, understand. They want to discover causes and the relationships between things and facts. Mena, how else can we develop these correlations but to test our ideas through experimentation? That's why when we're scaffolding a child as they play, we ask, What would happen if you do this? Or question their process by saying things like, why did you choose to use this material? Or what do you think will happen? This experimentation and the critical thinking that happens in the process is where the learning is born. I totally agree with you. Adding to what you're saying, our chapter says research and experimentation are values not only for teachers, but also for children. They are intrinsic elements of a pedagogy of relationships and listening, forming important means for theory building and testing. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. I want to invite you to think back on everything we discussed today in your personal practice. We want to close with two reflection questions. If you're comfortable, share your answers with us in the comments below. First, I want you to think about what role research and experimentation play in the education of young children. 
Now, I want you to reflect on a time where you conducted research and either observed or implemented opportunities for experimentation in an early learning environment. What was the end result of your research and experimentation? Great question. Here is mine. Think about the origins of visual media and the collective desire of the people to move away from the dictatorship of no alternative and towards a structure of democracy and pedagogy. Do you think this shift towards democracy in education was an important one to make? What are some of the ways you have implemented a democratic style of teaching and learning in your practice? Again, you can share your responses to these reflections in the comments section. We'd be happy to hear from you. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at yourpedagogygirl and to like and share on all platforms. That's right, listeners. Spread the good word about the You Pedago Girl podcast. Tell a friend to tell a friend. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. See, See you, you next week. week. You better go, girl.